and welcome to the third episode of the Final Word Podcast. I'm Lewis. And I'm Mike. And this episode we're going to be talking about screenwriting. First up we've got Moonlight, which won Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay at this year's Oscars. Yeah, so we're going to talk about that. But we're also going to talk about some of our favourite TV shows. I'm going to yep. talk a little bit about The West Wing, which is one of my favourites. And we're also going to talk about Happy Valley, which is collectively a show that we really yeah. enjoy. Uh, we're going to talk about Happy Valley specifically today because it's got some really amazing writing on it. But it's also got one specific section that contains some things that you really shouldn't do when writing. Yeah, yeah. And later on, I'm going to be interviewing Tom Bidwell, whose short film Wish 143 was Oscar nominated in 2011. He wrote the BAFTA-nominated series My Mad Fight Diary, which ran for three seasons on E4. And he's currently working on an, an adaptation of Watership Down for Netflix and the BBC. Okay, so let's start with Moonlight. Right, so now we're going to go into Moonlight. Uh, Moonlight uh, won Best Picture at the Oscars mm-hmm. after the whole debacle. It also won Best Adapted Screenplay because it's adapted from a play by Terrell Alvin McCraney called In Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue. And it was adapted by McCraney and Barry Jenkins, who also directed the film. Um, and it follows a young man named Chiron through his life. Um, he's, he's gay, and it's all about his struggle coming to terms with that and dealing with the fact that his mother's a drug addict. And from what I've heard, it's very autobiographical Yes. of, yeah. uh, of the two writers. And it's a really powerful, touching film. And we're going to play you a little clip now. Do you want to just give a little context? Yeah, a little bit of context. It's a short scene, but there's a lot that goes on in it. Um, it's basically, we're, 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 we have Little, which is the first... The first version of Chiron. Yes, yeah. yeah. And he is, he's been taken in by a drug dealer and his girlfriend because his mother, who is addicted to crack, is unable to look after him. And it's him asking about, for the first time, about what he, like who he may be. He may be gay. And he's asking about this. And then he's also asking more about uh, Juan, who's played by... Uh, uh, Mahershala Ali. So, yeah, in this clip, we've got Mahershala Ali, who plays Juan, yeah. which is the drug dealer. Um, Janelle Monet plays Teresa, which is his girlfriend. Yes, yeah. And then you've got Alex Hibbert, who's playing the youngest version of Sharon, who's nicknamed Little at this portion of yeah, the film. Yeah, and he's, and he's co- almost confronting him in, in his own way, in his own yeah. quiet way, uh, because he's the drug dealer and... He's kind of putting two two together because his mother is a drug addict. Yeah. So she's addicted to crack. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot going on in not many lines, so yeah. this is why we've chosen it. So yeah, we'll just play you this little clip and then we'll come back and talk about it. Yeah. What's a faggot? A faggot is. A word used to make gay people feel bad. Am I a faggot? No. No. You could be gay, but you gotta let nobody call you no faggot. I mean, unless. How do I know? You just do. I think. You know what you know. 
you gotta know right now. Alright? Not yet. Do you sell drugs? My mama. She do drugs, right? Yeah. Right, so we've just listened to a clip from Moonlight. Um, I think that scene's really, really powerful. Yeah, in, in a handful of lines, he yeah. said in it as well. It's right. It's the whole th it's the thing about the whole film with Chiron. He's a very introverted character, yeah. and you don't get much from him. He doesn't talk much until the very end, really. Yeah. So when it when he asks anything, mm. it's a surprise. So when it's, it's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big it's a big deal when he speaks at all. There's a joke about him saying he never never yeah. says more than three words at a time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, this this scene is one of his the first times he actually. Yeah, it's the first time it's addressed like explicitly that he might be different from the other boys that pick on him and chase him and things like that. Yeah. And, and you get a world behind this teasing. Like the first scene is him being chased, mm -hmm. but you get and what's going on inside his head yeah. by the fact that he asks what what's a faggot. That one that one line you get this world outside that he's been thinking of this he's been called yeah. this in the past uh Definitely. he's been thinking he's been thinking about this it's yeah and mind. it's it's also the fact that it's the first time we see him have a real relationship with anyone with juan he's until this point he's alone the whole film yeah so juan picks him up and takes care of him and it's it's a really strange thing because it's a very stable wholesome picture you know Sitting around, they're sitting around the dinner table, yeah, and they're just having a chat. But at the end of the day, Juan's a drug dealer. Exactly, yeah, and it makes it the way this is set up it makes it even more heartbreaking that at first you were, they establish him as this really nice, hard not to like him. Yeah, he's a very likable character. He's, he takes care of him. Yeah, he's established from. It's great though because the you know he's a drug dealer from yeah. the start. His first scene is him going yeah. to talk about a drop, um, or a territory or a yeah. patch or something, and. But you still like him. You still think he's an amazing guy because he looks after him so well. He can see that he needs, m not, maybe not even a father figure, a stable figure in his life yeah. to look after him. I mean, there's a scene where he teaches him how to swim. Yeah, and it's all very wholesome. But at the end of the day, you've still got the problem with the fact that he is a drug dealer and he's also dealing drugs to Sharon's mother. Yeah, and that comes after. Uh, but like the, the his answer to. His answer to yeah, we were talking about this. Um, his answer to what's a faggot, I think, is just such a brilliant. It's how to write a likable character, yeah, right there. It's such a you know, it's a word to make gay people feel bad. He doesn't ever give it the credence of it's a description of a gay gay person. No, it's just a bad word used to hurt people. Yeah, and then and then when he addressed he, when he addresses the fact that he he could be gay, he says when he says am I a faggot, he says no. And you, you could have gone, you could think one way or the other, yeah. you, could, you could think he's in denial saying you're not gay, no. you're straight. But no, he doesn't, he accepts him for what he is, yeah. even at that young age. Yeah. He accepts him and he says, you might be gay. But you don't have to worry about that right now. Yeah, exactly. Um, and in a, such a short amount of time, you 
and you need to in, because of what happens to mm-hmm. Juan, which we won't give yeah. away. But um, in such a short amount of time, you, you, he's characterised as, as this this father figure. Yeah, he's a real. And then it, as we said, it gets so heartbreaking go, just yeah. at the end because he's put his trust in him, and then he he can never really trust him because you know he's a criminal and he's affecting him. He's affecting Sharon directly. Yeah, by dealing to his mother, and it all for all he has to say is two words. Yeah, he says yeah yes, both twice. times, and that's it. And there's just two questions he's asked, and you realize, is it a, par- a paradox or like a, a contradiction to yeah. what? Yeah, what he is. Yeah, you know, he's he's his protector, but at the same time, he's protecting him from partly from his mother, but he's the reason that he needs protection yeah. from his mother. He's uh, <laughs> he's the drug dealer who's, who's causing him to Sharon to be there yeah. in the first place. Yeah. Uh, which uh, which sets up the mo- the moral for the rest of the film as well because it's Chiron's yeah. journey into battling against turning into that or mm. the, the vicious cycle repeating itself. Yeah, the, I think as well uh, when you see Chiron in the third part of the film, yeah. he does seem to model himself somewhat after Juan. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah the way he dresses, the, the way, way he dresses, looks, the way he looks, the way, the way he acts, he, even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a very it's very interesting because. Mahershala Ali is not in this film for a long time. No. He's in the first section, and he leaves a real lasting impact, I think. And this scene especially adds to that. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, with a character who's introverted, you need to be economical with the w- each yeah. word, I think. And it's a real lesson in how to make an introverted character speak volumes mm-hmm. with with very little. Yeah, uh, which is why it's so effective. Yeah, so I'd, I'd definitely recommend going to see this. It's, if it's yeah, still it's just a good, it's just a really strong film. Cinema, yeah. yeah. So now we're going to move on and talk about some of our favourite TV shows. So now we're going to talk a little bit about The West Wing. Um, it was on TV from 1999 to 2006. And it was created, and the first four seasons were written by Aaron Sorkin. Mm-hmm. And the show is about uh, the White House and the daily running of the White House, and it follows the staff and the president. The president's played by Martin Sheen, and the staff's made up of various uh, well-known actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, the clip I'm going to play for you today um, follows the communications director, um, who has found out that the president has been keeping a secret from him. Yeah. Uh, and that secret is that the president has MS and uh, he's recently been shot and he was on, under anaesthetic for a long period of time and he's also had various episodes whilst he's been in office and so the clip we're, we're going to play now is his communications director conf- confronting him about the fact that he's kept this a secret for so long I meant that during a night of extreme chaos and fear when we didn't yet know if we'd been the victims of domestic or, or foreign terrorism, or even an act of war, there was uncertainty as to who was giving the national security orders, and it was because you never signed a letter. So I'm led to wonder, given your condition and its lack of predictability, why there isn't simply a, a signed letter sitting in a file someplace. And the answer, of course, is that if there was a, a signed letter sitting in a file someplace, somebody would ask why. The commander-in-chief had just been attacked. He was under a general anesthetic. A fugitive was at large. The manhunt included every federal, state, and local law enforcement agency, the Virginia, Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. National Guard units were federalized. 
The KH-10s showed Republican Guard movement in southern Iraq. And 12 hours earlier, an F-117 was shot down in the no-fly, and the vice president's authority was murky at best. The national security advisor and the secretary of state didn't know who they were taking their orders from. I wasn't in the Situation Room that night, but I'll bet all the money in my pockets, against all the money in your pockets, that it was Leo, who no one elected. For 90 minutes that night, there was a coup d'etat in this country. And the walls came tumbling down. Okay, so we just had a little clip there from the West Wing, and I chose this clip because it's um, it's the culmination of this episode, and this episode is about Toby, um, the communications director, knowing that there's something going on within the White House that's being kept from him and from the public in general. Okay. And it works really well, um, I think, because the audience already knows about the president's um, condition. Yeah. And so throughout the episode, you see Toby doing his detective work, and this is like the final culmination because he brings it to the president that he knows that there's something going on. And he, he gets told what his diagnosis is. And so he just sits with it for a minute and thinks about it. Okay. And as you can tell in the clip, the president is really in denial about his diagnosis. Yeah, he is. I, I, I should probably mention, I have never watched this show. Yeah. But just from watching this scene alone, I got so much context yeah. from it without actively being... Yeah, because it's... It's a thing we're taught in screenwriting here at uh, John Moore's on yeah. the course that monologuing is, you know, is a no-no. Yeah, for now, yeah. It's one of those you got to learn the rules before yeah. you can break them thing and big blocks of text, whether it's scene description or uh, dialogue, mm. uh, are usually encouraged to be broken up a little bit more to keep yeah. the pace going. But why, explain why the mono, this monologue is so effective then. In I, th- I think it works so effectively because you've seen the president deny that the MS is affecting him or that it was wrong to keep it. Yeah. And so Toby has to literally break down every single thing that he's done and how calamitous it is. Yeah. You know, there was a sen- you know, that line for ninety minutes in this country there was a coup d'etat. Yeah. You know, it's such a powerful line because and you can see in the scene Martin Sheehan who plays the president yeah. really reacts to it, but he still tries to deny it, you know, that line Oh, the walls came tumbling yeah. down. He's but the, during this, during the monologue, he leaves. It's almost like he leaves. Uh, there is a little bit of silence, isn't there? In the yes. And it's like he leaves it for him, but he doesn't take it this mm. time because the truth is starting to set in mm. a little bit. Even though he comes out and denies it at the end, what this mo- in, during the monologue, that little bit of silence where he almost gives him the opportunity to say something, yeah. and, it's like, and he doesn't. Because I think at, by this point he knows he's done wrong, but it's just... That final thing of accepting the fact that, you know, he should not have kept this from yeah. people for so long. And, you know, it's it's um, a thing with Aaron Sorkin's writing in general. If you don't know, he wrote The West Wing. He also wrote A Few Good Men, Social Network, Moneyball. Okay. He's a very prolific writer, and he's also got a very specific style. And it's very fast-paced. Um, the dialogue's very, you know, frenetic. It's back and forth, you know, very clip sentences a lot of the time. But he also does this very well. He also does vast uh, monologues. You know, one of his most well-known ones is probably um, from his, the other TV series he wrote on The Newsroom. 
okay. which you tend to see posted on Facebook quite a lot. Okay. It's about why America isn't the greatest country in the world anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's a good five minutes or so of just stats about what he's what is wrong with America nowadays. And he um, also in A Few Good Men, you know, there's the great line, you know, you can't handle the truth. Oh, okay, he wrote that. He wrote that. So, yeah, so it's this this section that I chose is very Sorkin style. It seems li- almost like listed. Yeah. It's like he lists. It's very, yeah, That that's something that he does quite a lot. And as well, he's known for... Um, talking about specs a lot you know all of his characters tend to be very well educated and they like to talk about the fact that they went to harvard and all these things and they know very specific details about you know interesting things yeah so yeah this is perfect because this is listing done well and i think it's the timing that's the important part when it comes which is what we're going to be talking about with happy valley the timing of when this listing happens is is it feels earned at this point yes exactly because it's got to a certain point where there is no other way to convey this information other than to attack it head on yeah not for not for the audience because they know the audience Mm. know it's for the president's benefit whereas we feel like in the happy valley almost monologue report speech it's for the audience yeah it should never happen so let's move on to that we'll talk about happy valley now Next is my choice, and that's Happy Valley, which is a British crime drama. It won the BAFTA for Best Drama in 2015. Uh, yeah, uh, Happy Valley, it's written by Sally Wainwright. Um, it's based in West Yorkshire, and it's about a police sergeant named Catherine Kaywood and her, you know, dealing with crime in her patch, and yeah. more specifically, uh, dealing with one specific offender named Tommy Lee Royce. Yes. Who... Um, raped her daughter and her daughter then committed suicide and he's just got out of prison for another offense yes it's a, it's a running series it's yeah. not it's not a different crime every episode no it's uh, and she becomes sort of obsessed with catching him for doing something yeah and he is up to illegal activity and it's about her discovering what he's doing and stuff like yes, that yes yeah and the reason we chose this uh, this is a joint decision because unlike uh, your choice we both we've both yeah. watched happy valley and we both really like it say that first because my first we're going to choose an example that personally that stood out to both of us even if we hadn't attended the creative writing course i don't think Mm -hmm. we we get told a lot on the course show don't tell yeah and the very first scene in the very first episode of happy valley you get sergeant catherine kaywood reporting a lot of information yeah. about herself almost to the audience pretty much yeah it's very much uh this is who i am and this, this is, is everything situation. you need yeah. to know about me it is it is and it's it's upsetting because of how good they do it yeah. later on and it also kind of take the wind takes the wind out of the sails a little bit because all of these things she's saying i'll play the clip in a sec all of these things she's saying listing would be so much better to be revealed yeah. to the audience later on, or by dialogue, or but like not, I mean, um, in a scene or yeah. For the for anyone who doesn't know, the idea of show don't tell yeah. is that instead of just having the character talking and telling you directly the information, yeah. saying you, like I am angry, instead yes. of saying I am angry, an action that shows yeah. us the character's angry is so much more emotionally effective. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is, um, and this is what we thought. It's timing as well. It's it's right at the start, and mm-hmm. it's it's a very it's from the very first episode. It's the opening scene, in fact. Yeah. And what it is, um, Catherine has to deal with a guy who's drunk, 
and he's covered himself in petrol and he's threatening to set himself on fire. Yeah. And she's trying to convince him to step down from where he's standing and put his lighter down. Okay. We'll play the clip. I'm Catherine, by the way. I'm 47. I'm divorced. I live with my sister, who's a recovering heroin addict. I have two grown-up children, one dead, one who doesn't speak to me, and a grandson, so... Why? Why don't you speak to you? It's complicated. Let's talk about you. Okay, so... Yeah, there, there's the clip from yeah. Happy Valley that we were talking about. And the reason we chose this and is just because it's it's such a letdown in a, a, quite a few different ways. Yeah. We're given her age, the fact that she's divorced, the sister. sister yeah. See, that's the thing that sticks with me so much is the fact that she tells this guy that she's, not only has she got a sister and that she lives with her, but that her sister's a, a recovering heroin addict yeah. as well. It just seems like such a shoehorn yes of getting information across to the audience because it's so unnecessary yeah because that all these things on their own especially the sister the heroin addict and also that she says i've got two children one dead and the other doesn't speak Three to me ten, or yeah. so, um this is this is all things that now we know we just accept and as soon as we see these characters we're yeah. just like oh that's the that's the child that doesn't speak yeah. to her oh that's the sister that's a heroin addict yeah. these are all things that could have been such for such drama or such yeah. conflict yeah and been revealed slowly to us as the audience so you know you get that that sense of getting to know these people mm. instead of having, oh, this is just the recovering heroin addict sister. And this is this is a point that I I wanted to make about this. This is why I chose this as well. It's I think it's pre- pressure to get the hook in, especially yeah, with definitely. a lot of a lot of pitfalls pilot episodes fall into. Not just with this show, with other shows. If you watch a lot of pilots, they they ha- it's not just one hook they want to give. Because I've watched the promo for Happy Valley, and guess what? this monologue's used in the well, promo yeah, and it seems like it was specifically written for a promo piece mm-hmm. it's it's the pilot you want to get the audience um, attached straight away and they've just thrown so much information yeah. to, to see what sticks basically yeah, yeah. they um which is, is something that I, that I think is more for promotion and more for getting the audience to watch episode two definitely yeah. than for the story itself well, maybe I, th- I think not even to get into watch episode two just to carry on watching because that is the thing nowadays with a lot of tv it's yeah. keeping an audience contained for a whole hour when scene there's so scene. many other distractions yeah. you know so it's understandable but i think our main problem with this is that we're not angry we're just disappointed because <laughs> yeah. sally wainwright yeah. is such a brilliant writer and the rest of the series is so good. Exactly, and this proves it to us now. We, I've got a, a section now. We're not just going to leave it like that because this series is great yeah. for screenwriting. It's just this. Go on. Yeah. Well, no, the one thing that she does keep back. Yeah. Why her son doesn't speak to her. Yeah. That gets revealed later on in an example of a brilliant scene, which we're going to show to you now. And yeah. this is what this is what we were thinking. Uh, this, this is, is why we're so disappointed yeah. in Sally. This is showing us. Yeah. This is showing us, yeah. and it's so much more effective. Yeah. yeah. So oh, the, oh, yeah. the clip we're going to play now is um, it's Catherine's birthday party. Yes. And she doesn't like a big fuss, and you know it's really upsetting her that this is going on. And her son's there, and her son's got very, very drunk. Yeah. And he's confronting Catherine and her ex-husband Richard about um, their daughter who killed herself. Yes, yeah. And about the preconceived notions they have of what she was like. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it teaches us something new yeah. as well during it. What's matter? What's going on? Daniel's... He's had a bit to drink. Why don't you take Ryan upstairs, Catherine? Why, what's up, Daniel? Yeah, go on, sort off to bed, you little twat. You can piss off an oil, bitch. Huh? 
Well, take Ryan upstairs and I'll uh, deal with this. Uh, you'll, you'll deal with this? Come on. Do you think? Trying to calm down. You know, I wasn't even talking to you. I stopped talking to you years ago. Yes, I know. But you smashed a bottle. Oh, you know, You know, sod all. You're hurting yourself or anyone yeah, else. Don't talk to me like some numpty that you just picked up off the street for being off their head in a gutter. Daniel. About this. We're just having a bit of a domestic. What's going on? Oh, you can shut yourself in there with that lot, you can. It's not even you I'm interested in. I wrote you off years ago. It's him I'm disappointed about. Mm. Why? You're going to start believing all this holy sim Becky and CC shit yourself next, Dad, same as her. He's upset because we've had Ryan round at our house. No, it's not about him. It's about you. I thought you got it, all of it. Becky was a loser. She ran rings round you. She hung around with wasters and pillheads and bloody idiots and she was asking for it. You shouldn't say that in front of your mother. You know she doesn't like it. Yeah. And we wouldn't want her to stop believing her own shit, would we? She was asking for it, mother. She liked him. She told me she were that stupid. What's going on? All my... What's going on is all my life I behave... I do well in school, well enough. Keep my head down, never give you a minute's bother, either of you. And what thanks do I get? I get... Why didn't you die, Daniel? Why won't it you? Have I ever said that? I've... If. There's no if. He knows, he were there. Well, perhaps you want to rewrite that bit as well now, Dad. Eh? If I ever said that... I've already apologised. No one believes all this bereavement crap. Nobody that matters. We know we were there. We know it's not sorrow. It's guilt. You couldn't stop her. Becky was off the rails. She were driving you up the wall and there was nothing you could do. So stop trying to convince yourself and everyone else that she was something she wasn't. She was a stupid, selfish little bitch. She thinks she'd give a toss about you. Have some respect for those of us who were there and who knew the truth. Okay, so f for me why this scene is so effective is it's playing, when it comes to point of view in a show, mm. especially when you're yeah. when you're following one particular character's point of view, you almost forget that they could be biased at times, yeah. remember things they want to remember, mm -hmm. and then when you get hit with these things, because this is the last episode of season one, yeah. so from the start, which the clip we showed you before, this is the last episode of season one. Yeah, and from the very beginning, the way Catherine talks about Becky, her daughter. Yes, yeah. You know, she was innocent and she was attacked brutally by Tommy Lee Royce. And, you know, she was innocent. And none of this should have ever happened to her. And, and Which is why you root for her so yeah. much. And then all these truths come out, which was she she took drugs. And then he says, and then uh, Daniel, her son, played by Carl Davis, says uh, she liked him. Mm. This is a guy who's been who's who is a rapist yeah. in the series. He's done awful things. He's killed. He's killed someone. Yeah. He's killed people. Yeah. By this point, you see how truly evil and twisted Tommy Lee Grace is, yeah. and it just completely changes your conception of what Catherine believes. And you know, for her as well, it changes yeah. everything that she knows to be Who true. Her daughter was. Yeah. This this person who's died before the series begins mm -hmm. that you only get through Catherine's eyes yeah. until now and that is why it's so effective and he says it's not sorrow it's guilt mm. and that blows everything wide open yeah that's a real that's a real punchline and i think as well silence is used very effectively in this yeah. scene after that big reveal of 
why didn't you die, Daniel? There is a long silence. There is a make big pause there. Yeah. And uh, for a policewoman as well, who's trying to calm him down. Yeah. Uh, and she, she, you can, she's talking over the top of him. This bit. Yeah. There's nothing, and it is very true. You know, he says at one point, you know, don't try and talk to me like I'm some idiot you've picked up off the street. Yeah. And the tactic she is using, you do see her use on family members on, a lot. Oh, I, I was going to say on suspects a lot as well. Okay. Yeah. She yeah. does. She does the thing of you know talking in a very even tone, trying to make them calm down and all yep. this. And she, she's using the same tactics. Yeah. Which I find very interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's him saying, "Stop believing your own shit." Mm. It's this. This is why the scene is so effective. It's because we're learning something new, but at a part where we've been fed all this information, so it all kind of makes sense yeah. now. It's not coming out of the blue. Um, so I I don't know. I, I, do you want to add anything to it? Uh, well, I think I think one thing that's interesting is that there's a few moments where she does interact with Tommy Lee Royce and he says, "You know, oh, I knew you're Becky." You know, and she goes to see Tommy's mom at one point, and she says, "Oh, is it your oh, Becky yeah. that it's our Tommy's lab?" Yeah. You know, and like, like they had a relationship, and she shuts that down straight away. No, they didn't have a relationship. That didn't happen yeah, at all. Because to- when Tommy does talk to her about it, yeah. he he does it like he's done nothing wrong. Yeah, and he, sa- he says it like he's done. And he doesn't even know that she's killed herself as well at first. Yeah. And so, but through our eyes as the audience, we just think, "Oh, he's just he he's just evil." You know, he doesn't see what he's done is wrong. He is evil, to be fair, but it, like he is definitely. There's there's way more to it than black and white when it yeah. comes to this incident. Yeah. Especially. Well, and and through the whole of Happy Valley, there is no black and white, which is why I think it's so brilliant. Is that you see different sides to each character, and you can sympathise and dislike each and every character that you come across. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we, we've talked about Catherine in this scene more than. Daniel really and it's yeah. his scene <laughs> it really is his scene yeah. which goes to show it. so much is happening in what you get um, you get information about a dead character you get Catherine you get mm-hmm. his own outburst which he's been dying to say yeah. you can tell he's genuinely hurt in this scene mm. uh, and that's why it's so so effective because we get shown so much more uh, than just what's given to us uh, which is why we thought it was a good contrast from the yeah from the first anyway. scene yeah so you know Sally Wainwright is a brilliant writer, and this is <laughs> yeah. this is evidence, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, uh, those are two extracts of shows that we really love, and specific examples of how and why we think screenwriting works. Yeah, exactly. Up next, I've got an interview with Tom Bidwell, who is going to be talking about his process as a writer and also what it's like to work in the industry. I'm interviewing the screenwriter Tom Bidwell, whose short film Wish 143 was nominated for an Oscar in 2011. He adapted Rail's book My Mad Fat Diary into a television series of the same name, which ran for three seasons on E4, and he's currently working on projects for the BBC and Netflix. And I've travelled back to my hometown and his hometown of Leyland to talk about his journey as a writer so far. Hi, Tom. Hello. (laughs) Brilliant. Um, Okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to try and do this in a semi-chronological uh, way so I'm gonna go right back now. Yep. Um, did you write as a child, or do you remember writing as a child? Uh, yeah, I seem to remember be really enjoying the creative writing tasks set in English lessons. 
going back to when we were, you know, even when I was maybe six or seven, but I mainly wrote poetry mm. up until the age of 14, 15. And then um, I was, I had a cancer when I was 14 and put together a series of a poetry book or booklet as my... <laughs> I think I've actually got that. Oh, yeah. I think my grandma gave me a copy of it. I mean, it's not, it's not the, it's not the, it's not T.S. Eliot, but... Um, I mean, how old were you? 14? 14, exactly. yeah. So it's kind of, it's a good, it's more catharsis than anything, but... Um, why, why, why poetry? I don't know, really. I've always liked form and poetry seems to often suggest, the rhyme suggests a form or um, the stanza construction suggests a form and that was something my brain liked to sit in when I was writing. Whereas yeah. prose is, you know, is obviously kind of very free okay. and too free for me. Yeah. Um, do you remember then or a little further in the future uh, a particular moment when you realised you wanted to actually be a writer? Is it something you've like, fallen into over time? It was really just, I always, th I, I can't remember ever making the decision because I always thought this is something that I want to do. Even, even when I was young even when I was kind of 10 I, I'd watch TV and kind of imagine how that scene worked and how how I'd piece it together in the future because I felt in my head like it was going to happen and I don't know if that's kind of sounds ridiculous when I look back but maybe that kind of it wasn't even confidence it was just like I know that that's what I'm going to do okay. and so I guess yeah I yeah. just moved towards it okay and um, you studied creative writing didn't you or writing um, yeah. Where was this at? So I did, um, went to University of East Anglia yeah. in Norwich, which is a really good creative writing course. It's mainly known for, well, it's known now for poetry as well, because Andrew Motion was the um, lead professor on the creative writing degree for some time, um, but um, Bradbury was there as well. Yeah. So it's, had a, it's always had a reputation for being one of Europe's um, most um, leading uh, creative writing schools. So, But I went there and I said to, when I applied to go in, I wanted to do the prose course. I'm not sure why. But I said on my application, I really love drama and I love theatre and I, and they moved me towards creative writing and theatre. Okay, and cool. Yeah. And after that, I went to the BBC Writers Academy, which is another kind of training ground for script writers. So do you think theatre kind of, is that how you got into script writing because of the theatre? Yeah, because theatre, when you're breaking in, is much, much more accessible because you can do it on an amateur level, but you mm -hmm. can't. You can't make TV on, or you can make films on amateur level, but it's it's just much more difficult. You you can get a group of like-minded friends together and put a theatre piece on that's going to be seen, and you're going to get feedback. Whereas doing a film takes a lot a lot more finance. Usually, it's getting less so, but you, back when I was starting out, certainly. Yeah, and a few people heard while I was looking up creative writing courses to take before I started uni. It's one of those where you see some articles like, "Can you teach creative writing? Mm. Do you feel like a taking a course in creative writing helped you as a writer hmm. do you feel like it helped you at all was it more outside of class recommendations you were given or? I remember when I finished my degree <clears throat> my degree wasn't necessarily in um, excuse me <clears throat> in writing itself but it was in theatre and um, plays and studying dramatic form but it wasn't necessarily in writing itself and when I left and I said to one of the professors that I want to be a writer and she said you'll never be a professional writer unless you do a master's degree or something similar in writing. I remember at the time thinking that's, <laughs> I remember being a bit kind of like, well, I don't quite believe that, but I understand what she meant now because when I did the BBC Writers Academy, John York, um, who was running the academy at the time, is, is a huge 
fan of story and studying story, why we tell stories, what a story is, the various structures of stories. And he introduced me to formal structure and taught me why I wrote the way I did already, what I was doing, um, how to write more quickly. And really that's when everything changed for me. And I understood what that professor meant then. What she meant was that you, what she meant was, yeah, you can, you could probably be a writer, but you, you know, writing's a craft and it's something you really do need to learn um, and really stick at okay. with hard work, yeah. And what is it about screenwriting that spoke to you more than other forms of writing, like prose or uh, like, as something you wanted to pursue? Why, why screen? Um, that's a good question. I guess I've always liked, I've always liked prose and poetry as well, but I guess, um, because I went in through the theatre and I got to see how actors work and I quite like the relationship you develop with people creatively and collaboratively. Whereas when you're working on prose, it felt like a much more isolated process. I mean, you work with an editor quite often, but it's you, you're on the desk. But when you work, work in theatre or TV to some degree and film as well, you're working with a director, you're working with an editor, you're working with producers and you're working with actors ultimately as well. And they're all bringing their ideas, <clears throat> their philosophies, to the table as well so I felt like it was there was a more social aspect to it and you end up having a relationship with those people because you're studying people for the nature of the work you end up having a very close bond with those people that people go out every week every weekend to try and get by just going to the pub and by you know that's what you get at work and that was <clears throat> very attractive prospect okay um what is a television show or film everyone should watch and why Ooh. I have a feeling you're going to say The Sopranos. I like, do like The Sopranos. Um, I My favourite films, I like Casablanca because if you watch Casablanca and you watch the way it's written and the way the characters interact and the, how well thought out it is, it's just an absolute joy. Every word that's spoken has been considered and I still, for me, it's unparalleled in terms of screenwriting. Uh, 12 Angry Men is a good example of how to I unpack yeah how to unpack it's like and a, an it's like stage play almost yeah exactly exactly he unpacks kind of it's just as exciting as watching um an action film but it's in one room because it means something to the characters and the emotional impact's in- incredible so yeah. rear windows I, I like as well attention in that this there's a lot jaws and die hard more <laughs> recent ones um television series wise sopranos i do like um more recently, Stranger Things, I thought was great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Casablanca, okay. if I had to name one, yeah. Thank you. Uh, what would your advice be to a writer or your younger self, even, if that's more interesting? Hmm. Uh, trying to break into the TV and film industry, uh, do you have to have a certain frame of mind or attitude to succeed? Um, I think, looking back, really what... Um, What's important for me, and, and Jim McGovern says this quite a lot, is that um, you're not always going to be the most talented person in a room, in a writer's room, but you can't always be the hardest working. Mm-hmm. And um, that really is what is going to make the difference in the end. Because if you put the hours in and you learn how to write, you read other scripts, you talk to other writers about what they're doing, you watch TV and you watch film, and you just constantly try and improve your own craft then you're just gonna there's something's gonna happen okay. something's gonna change for you 
Do you have a particular process? Like, what is the day in the life of a writer like when you're working on a specific series? Yeah. Um, I really feel at the moment, if I'm being honest, like I need to refresh what I'm doing because I've kind of got into a rhythm of. Um, I feel like I'm being a bit lazy at the moment. Whereas I used to, when I sat down to write my Mouth like Diary, the series, I wrote a treatment that was so detailed that um, it took me two days to write each script after that because the treatments were everything was in there. Whereas nowadays I'm kind of doing what what I think a lot of people could think writers do, which is sit down at your desk and you sit there and you just start writing and you see where the story goes and there's some kind of magic that takes over you. It's just not. In my experience, that does not exist. And you go to a lot of you go to a lot of talks by writers, and they say, "Oh yeah, I just got there and I started writing." And or I've, I've heard writers say, I, t- "I went down to my shed and I took a bottle of whiskey." And then when I when I woke up in the morning, you know, there was this wonderful screen. And it's just like it's just it's just misleading. Yeah. Like it isn't about that. It's about craft, and it's about you know sitting down and going right. Okay, what, what's the journey? What's the inciting incident? Um, what really is this about? What's the truth of the story as well? And that's what the great writers like Hemingway did, they weren't they weren't there to show you how good a writer they were. They were there to tell you about truths in the world and everything else that was superfluous to that was was out of their books or out of their scripts. Mm-hmm. And um I really feel like I need to <laughs> need to go back and remember that and um approach my scripts with that kind of fastidiousness that I used to. So a day in the life should be I sit down, I work on these treatments, I work on my ideas um, and then I start to develop the scripts much, much later on, further down the line. Um, but at the moment, it's writing scenes and meandering around, and it's it's leading me to be a little frustrated. Okay. <laughs> uh, what's the what's been the hardest scene you've had to write, and that's um, anything uh, you've ever written? Uh, do you remember a particular scene that's given you the most trouble? Most recently, we've um, on Watership Down. Uh, I was I was in yesterday. I was in the studios because we we're editing the, editing the animatics, which are the animated storyboards um i looked at one of the drafts and it's from 2014 and it's, it's you know three years ago and i thought oh my god how long have we been on this but there's this one scene that on the page it's at the start of episode two and it unpacks three hours worth of story strands three strands and it's one scene that unpacks it all and i remember when we wrote it we must have wrote it 25 30 times and it's still causing problems now um and sometimes it's just the nature of the story that brings up tricky points. It's not necessarily the the content, like the emotional content of it. I find that, you know, that comes quite easily if you've done your planning. Mm-hmm. If you do the right planning, you can really allow yourself to be free in, in, with your dialogue and with the really imaginative stuff, like the emotions and stuff. The hardest thing to write emotionally was the final scene of um, My Mouth Fat Diary when, when I'd finished on the series, and it wasn't because of the content of the scene, but it was because I'd finished with those characters and I was saying goodbye to those characters and it sounds very it sounds very sad but I was really tearful because I know I knew that I wasn't going to write on that series again because I'd kind of told all the stories I wanted to tell and I came downstairs and I remember just sitting there on the couch and you know it was just really it's just kind of a grief washed over me because <laughs> because you spend a lot of time with them in your head and I think to immerse yourself in the world like you have to with these with these things to get to get uh, some real good content out then you do get a connection that is hard to let go of. Yeah. Mm. Sorry for making it all emotional. <laughs> <laughs> um, I this is perfect because my next few questions were on my MyFat diary and working on it. Uh, do you find adapting existing work harder or easier than creating your own original work? 
I th- I personally think it's easier because the, you know the 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 previous writer, which is usually a prose writer, has done the um, has done a, all the groundwork in terms of creating a world. They're usually creating pretty good, well-rounded characters. I mean, and if they haven't, it usually doesn't appear on a screenwriter's desk. Mm. I mean, it's usually only novels and uh, novellas that have got really something in them that's extraordinary that end up being adapted. Not always, but usually. Um, so I find that's easier because what I'm bringing to it, I'm becoming I'm more of a structuralist in that point of view where I, I take the story that's there. Sometimes you change you know, mm. a, a fair amount of it, but your job is, as a structuralist, to put that into a three-act structure, five-act structure, whatever the um, series or film demands. Whereas if you're creating it yourself, you really are facing the blank page like you do when you're a novelist um, writing writing fiction. And I'm doing that at the moment. I've just started writing three original screenplays and it's, you know, it's a lot of characters, a lot of, a lot of rules, um, you know. So, yeah, definitely adaptation's easier. Okay. Is it difficult, I'm talking in reference to Ray here, is it difficult to have bad things happen to a character that's so vulnerable or fragile um, mm. without getting too attached? And how do you find the right balance? Because it's heartbreaking at some points, and I was thinking about how you would write that, a, a character that you just kind of want to wrap up and not have anything bad happen to them, and you have to write bad things that happen to her. Yeah, I suppose it, it be, being philosophical about it, you know, I'd gone through a lot of the stuff that Ray's gone through. I mean, obviously not not directly the same, but similar emotional struggles and gone through the same you know level of suffering that she's gone through and I suppose all drama is about and all stories to some degree is about change and about how we change and how we learn so although she went through the suffering I know that suffering forces people to change and forces people to learn about themselves and about the world so so in a way it was kind of like trying to get this character from a place where she was just you know in bits in, in pieces and really unwell uh, mentally through all this suffering when she keeps learning little bits and pieces towards the end when she can really you know you can really look at her and say you know she's going to do all right now okay so it's like it's kind of like it's okay because you know they're going to come out the other end <laughs> i guess so yeah and it's okay because that's what happens in life as well i mean there are moments when you when you're suffering but there's always a, there's always an end to that in in my experience okay and how how do you write because this is set in college um and life before that hmm. how do you write believable dialogue for people different to yourself teenagers girls teenage girls um and people facing situations that you've never even like you've never yeah. been a part of or? it's difficult i think and i think some people really struggle with this so it's I've, I've never kind of it's always something that's come quite natural to me uh, the dialogue aspect of it a lot a lot of the other aspects of writing i've really had to work on and and um and still do but dialogue something that i've always I've just managed to be able to sit into a scene and and just let the characters kind of um, be around each other. It's not always great dialogue, but I've I've always managed to ch- to kind of get a handle on the voices pretty quickly. Um, sometimes it's worth doing some research for sure. I think if you're if you if you're starting out, it's much better to write characters and people and situations that you're kind of familiar with. Um, there'll always be something that you're not familiar with, but, but at least starting out with that is a good thing because you know it and understand it. Um, but then later on, writing Ray was really just writing. I just imagined I was there, I guess. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there a difficult second album feeling with when writing the second series of a television show? Did it Did it come out after you'd already known if it was successful, or did you feel any pressure 
more so than the first series. I knew how much it meant to a lot of the fans because I knew it was something unusual and as a protagonist that they'd never really... People responded to it because she's relatable, I think, and she's just, she's not, you know, she's not come out of RADA and, and she's not this kind of, like, you know, factory-made actress that you see at the lead of most American and UK TV shows. She's She's just a normal girl, and I think the pressure I felt was to make sure the stories retain the truth that they'd seen in the first series. Um, so we, we threw a lot of stories out. There's still heightened moments because it's still a drama. You can't, you know, it's not a documentary, but to keep it real, I guess that's, that's, that's a terrible phrase, but to keep it truthful is a better phrase. Um, that's what we're trying to do. Keep like, it the, real. <laughs> the intro's yours. You can, as you can see, I'm down with the kids. So uh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay um the next questions now are just in general not not about my mad fat diary yeah anymore. but you can obviously attribute it to that mm-hmm. uh, some actors can't watch themselves perform once they've finished uh, a, a film they can't physically go and watch themselves because it's too yeah it's too much for them as a writer do you fear watching a television show you've written on afterwards or do you got do you actually watch them yeah i watched mine the only one i've not watched was a casualty episode where we me and a good friend of mine is, um, had a really, really, really terrible time on it. And it was, you know, it was one of those scripts where I almost stopped doing the, it almost kind of changed professions. It was so bad. We'd, we've both never seen our double bill casualty episodes. And I don't think we ever will. Maybe one day in 20 years we'll go back and watch it. But um, that's the only one I've not seen. The other stuff I watch, and it's really strange because when you watch TV, you don't realise how much you talk over it or how much you check your phone or you make a cup of tea. But... When your stuff's on, and someone's someone comes in like it's talking in the background, you're like, "Shut up!" You know, I've worked on this for three years, um, but I really enjoy it. I think it's so exciting, and it's such a privilege as well. And it comes on, and your title sequence is there, and and you you know maybe you chose the music for the title sequence, and you were the maybe you had a, a, a decision in the actor who was there, and you're seeing it all come together, all these decisions, and um, it's just exciting. It's really exciting. And after it's finished, any show that you've watched. Do you instantly then go online and look up the reviews and search yeah. for the bad ones? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did with the first season of Mad Fight. I really went a bit crazy over it because I was on social media at the time, not anymore, um, partly because of this <laughs> reason. Um, I went, I went on, and it was, it was a, you know, it was a overnight. Now we got, I, I kind of got thousands of Twitter followers, and it was really bizarre. And you kind of get because you work so. I say like most, even even screenwriters work in their own bubble to a degree. You don't see that many people, and you don't get that much feedback. You you work with a small team, but when you it's suddenly open and millions of people have seen a show, it's it's so tempting just to see what everyone thought and that decision you made. Like I said earlier, what did they think of the title music? What did they think of this? But what you know, you're, you're reading like you don't know who the person is. It could be like a twelve year old lad who's you know just likes being mean online or. You know, and you're taking these things, you can't help but take them a little bit personally because you put a lot of yourself into the series. Reviews in the papers are different. You know, I still will look at those, but you've got to take them with a pinch of salt. We got some terrible kickings on Mad Fat and, yeah. you know, and it went on to, to a degree of success. So what do they know, I guess? But you've got to say that about the good ones as well. You can't just say the bad ones, they don't know what they're talking about. You've got to take it all with a pinch of salt. So you've developed a thicker skin, probably? I think so. But just in general, just being older, I think. Okay. Yeah. What uh, do you think um, of the future of writing for television and film is going to be, especially 
with the rise of Netflix, um, mm. how, have you noticed uh, so far um, a shift as a writer? Yeah, for sure. I think everyone has in the industry. Um, it's definitely changing. There's definitely more international co-pros. Most shows are pretty global now. Um, it's strange, really, because there's so much more TV being made now. And a lot, I've heard a lot. I called it the golden age about four years ago in an interview. But that was because there's some pretty good TV on. Now, I'm not sure the quality has improved. I just think there's more of it. Is that good or bad? Because people can see, I guess that people can kind of seek it out for themselves now or they become the critics like right, yeah. instantly though, immediately. And whatever's yeah. popular is word of mouth. Like this is how um, Stranger Things, Making a Murder, all these things yeah. came through and then they became incredibly popular because of yeah. other people telling them about it. I suppose there's definitely more choice. Yeah. So you can kind of, you've got a more bespoke service, but, um, and like you said, I think the the thing that's been cutting edge for me, those documentaries have been great recently, you know, going back to Blackfish as well, there's been some extraordinarily truthful documentaries or documentaries that have portrayed something that I'd never thought about before, mm. whereas in drama, I think we're at risk of having a lot of choice, but nothing particularly that's, um, you know, kind of changing what TV is or, or you know, kind of pushing the boundaries of, of what, or really illuminating what life's like, I suppose is the ultimate goal of it. So what's the future TV? I hope it's that we, I sit down and, and just blown away by series over the next few years and just think, I can't believe this is how good this is. And um, because more money doesn't necessarily mean better TV, I think. Yeah. yeah. HBO is still making so. Have you watched The Leftovers? No, I've not seen it. Watch it. My, the, the person who... Uh, um, he's. I think there's only been two seasons out, and my the guy I'm doing the podcast with, Mike. Mm. He uh, he told me about it, and I watched it. And it's they do it like in The Sopranos. They have some. Do you know those episodes where there's like full on dream sequences, like where Tony's like in a hotel room on a conference or something. Yeah, like, yeah, um, yeah. They do that, but incredibly well. And some of them are just like, it's good. It's it's well written. It's 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 about two percent or three percent something like that of the world's population just goes missing just like that but it instead of dealing it's not like sci-fi instead of dealing with that it's the characters and how people have dealt with it and it's it's just really good it's really the good leftovers season. the leftovers yeah it's good that isn't a plug for the show <laughs> i'm not a commissioner <laughs> hbo paid me to no i think to be fair like H, places like hbo and to some degree netflix as well are and you know bbc and itv of course are still producing some great shows um it's true, but I think there's a, I think there's a kind of, I don't know. I just, I just worry there's a lack of ambition to do really, really exciting stuff. Have you watched Happy Valley? Yes, that's, I enjoyed that. That's yeah. awesome. That's, that's great. Really good. She's yeah. a great writer. That, I enjoyed that yeah. so much. Yeah. I should put. Sorry, I'll get back to. What are you allowed to talk about? What anything you're working on at the moment? I mean, we talked yeah, about yeah. Netflix. We talked about working for Netflix before yeah. briefly with Watership Down. Yeah. Um, Speaking of the future of TV being terrible, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So we're doing a watership down for Netflix, BBC, which is um, you know it's, it's going to be on in 2018, Christmas Day 2018, um, which is seems like an extraordinarily long time. But the animating four hours is just a. I didn't realise how, um, not laborious, but how how much how much effort you have to put into just to animate the performance mm-hmm. of one rabbit for an hour emotional performances it takes an age and um, so there's that which we're doing which is um good fun very interesting and we've got a 
a really talented cast working on it and um the other stuff is I'm doing a get adaptation of get Carter um which has gone to um we've just written a pilot for it and uh, we're taking it to a directors at the moment we're kind of trying to attach an A-list director to it because nowadays again this is how TV's changed it used to be you go in with an idea and um they'd give you money and they'd say yeah that's a great idea go ahead and make the series or write a script and then we'll read the script then go ahead and make it nowadays it's quite often the case where you write the script, you use the script to get a director attached, you use the director to get an actor attached in the lead role, you take that package to a broadcaster at that point. So you put your own money in or the production company's money in upfront before you get to a network or a broadcaster, whereas it used to be the case that you didn't move until a broadcaster or a network had got involved. Uh, and to finish off, um, if you, in another world, um, if you decided to do something else, go somewhere else, mm -hmm. What would you do? What else would you do if you weren't a writer? It's a good question. I've, I've always I've always been interested in uh, psychology and counselling, and I quite like the idea of um, being a therapist. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I've always thought about that, and I've also I've also always wanted to produce um, TV, and uh, we're looking at the moment into setting up a a company to go into that a bit more because it's I don't know. Help, working with other writers is something I really enjoy doing. So if I wasn't a writer, hopefully I'd be an editor or a producer. Or okay, so it's always going to be, regardless, something something creative. creative. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's nice to know. Yeah. Uh, thank you for doing this interview. With me. No worries, my pleasure. Great. That's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, yeah, uh, so stay subscribed, guys, and find us on Facebook and Twitter with The Final Word Pod or Final Word Podcast. We've also got our website, which is thefinalwordpod.weebly.com. Yeah. So thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. Yeah, see you.